Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our, our message on this Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, as always, to gather together as your people, um, here to worship your son, Jesus, to um, learn more and to uh, study him uh, and to be made more into his image, God. All the different things that we do on a Sunday morning as we come together, as we celebrate um, what you've done for us, Lord, as we reflect on it, as we're just made new, Lord, we're refreshed. I pray that you'd help us to do that. And specifically, Lord, as we spend some time uh, studying your word, meditating on what it would look like to be, uh, become even better disciples of you, Lord, that you would just bless us and help us to do that well this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so have any of you ever heard of this thing? It's, it's, it's a, you know, Jelly Belly, right? The Jelly Bean Company, they make jelly beans. So they have this game that you can play. It's called Bean Boozled. Has anyone ever heard of this? Okay, a few people have heard of it. It's this, I tried this in college once. I haven't tried it since. I think you'll know why here in a second. Um, but basically, like, you get a bag of jelly beans, and they have a bunch of different jelly beans in there. And here's an official description from their website. So Bean Boozled pairs two jelly beans that look exactly alike, but that could not taste any more different. You could get one of our most popular flavors or one of our wildest. And here's the catch. You won't know which ones are which until you try them. Are you brave enough? Okay, so when you open up a bag of these, you're conf- and I think they mix up, they like kind of rotate which jelly beans are in it. But here's some examples of the types of jelly beans you might get in there. So you might, you get two that look the same. For example, you have one flavor is tutti frutti and the other tastes like stinky socks, right? But they look exactly the same. You can't tell which is which. Or lime and lawn clippings, which is weird. I actually love the smell of a freshly mowed lawn. So that one doesn't maybe sound quite so bad. Licorice and skunk spray is another one I thought was interesting. Um, coconut and baby wipes. We, we just... We, we have a new baby in the house. We use a lot of baby wipes. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to eat one. Um, and then uh, peach and barf. I distinctly remember the barf one from when I did this. It is super gross. It really tastes like barf. Like it, it is kind of uncanny. I have no clue how you could put that flavor into a jelly bean, but they figured out how to do it. The idea is that you can't tell which of these is which on the outside, and the only way to really find out which is which is to kind of take a bite of it and see. Now, I think a lot of times Christians can be kind of like these jelly beans. We might have two of them, and they might look the same on the outside, but as you get to know them, as you kind of taste them, they, they seem very different as you get to know them more, right? They, most, they may, may be two people, let's take, for example. They've gone to the same church together for decades. They serve in a lot of the same ways. They use the same language, and they talk about their faith in the abstract. They're very committed to believing the gospel. They talk about that a lot. They're very regular in their church attendance, and they both are very committed to serving Jesus. But as you get to know them, you bite into them, as it were. You find that one might taste very pleasing and Christ-like, like just like a description we might read in Scripture of who Jesus is, and the other one tastes a little bit more like baby wipes or barf, right? Now, on the one hand, this shouldn't surprise us too much. Christ- Christian teaching throughout the centuries has always said that we are of unpleasing taste 
deep down. And it's not just that we have you know, bad days sometimes, but there's a part of us that is not whole. It, is, it can be very dark at times. It contributes to the unwellness of the world. We call this sin. This is something that we think is true of all humans. And that's why we need a rescue. That's why we talk about uh, Jesus coming to save us from our sin. And we wrestle with that for the rest of our lives. Right? So Christianity is fundamentally for people who are not okay, who taste unpleasant. And, and that, I think that's one of the most fundamental parts of faith, is to recognize that. Right? There's never this expectation that you get it all together to please God and, at any point in your life. Right? And so yes, we come in a mess, but here's the question I want to ask. Should we stay there? Should it be the expectation that how we come in to faith is exactly how we look when we die one day? That there is sort of no change for us as we grow. Should that be expected? Right? I'm talking about something called spiritual growth here. Right? And I think it's, it's a good question to ask sometimes. Is, are the ways that we talk about the gospel within the church, the good news of Jesus, is the way that we talk about that sometimes maybe contributing to a lack of growth within ourselves or within the wider church, right? Because I think often Christians who are really un, unpleasant, right, people that maybe you get to know them and you're like, you don't look that much like Jesus, I'm sorry, they're, they oftentimes believe they're very dedicated to God. But for them, the gospel is simply about something that's going to happen to them in the future, right? They're going to end up in heaven and not hell, right? And it doesn't really have that much to do with them in the present otherwise, right? It doesn't really do much other than impact their future destiny in some way. And so they can talk about things like God's love plenty, but then at the same time, they do things like go on Twitter and attack people left and right, right? Uh, being a total troll. And for them, there's no sort of like disjoint between those two things because in their mind, the gospel is something that is just a code they've received. Like they're sh- going to show up at an Airbnb later and they get the code in their email and now they have the code to get in when they get there, Right? To this person, eternal life isn't something that has started yet. It's reserved for the future. And it really doesn't impact them very much in the present. But the question is, is that how we should think about eternal life? Is that really what the gospel as it's presented in Scripture? Is that a full description of it? We're in a series where we are kind of working through us as a church, our framework for discipleship, and we're calling it No Grow, Go Together, right? A disciple is someone who knows God in the ways that we've already talked about. The last two weeks have been focused on that. A disciple is someone who's growing, which we'll be talking about today and next week. A disciple is someone who goes. Um, They serve and they invite others. We'll talk about that in just a few weeks, and then we'll end it all by talking about how disciples are people who do all of these things. They know, grow, and go together within a community. We're going to talk about all these different things over the course of the next few weeks, and it's a series for us to come back to and build on. That's what I would really hope for this to be. It's sort of foundational, something that's really comprehensive, but also really brief and simple at the same time that we can, as a church, use to sort of describe what we're trying to do, questions we can ask ourselves around these things. Am I knowing? Am I growing? Am I going? Am I doing this all together? And I think we would say that a fundamental premise of all of this is that disciples, what we're trying to produce as a church, what I, you know, I think Christians, I think honestly would say they want to be a disciple of Jesus. I would say it's a fundamental premise for us that disciples are people who live like eternal life doesn't start when we die, but it's already started for us if we follow Jesus. 
In our first sermon, if you uh, were able to hear that one, and it was no part one, knowing part one, we studied a passage in John 3 where Jesus talks about being born again. It's a very famous passage where he meets with a man named Nicodemus. It, within it is the most famous bi- uh, Bible verse, maybe in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, that's kind of packed in there. And, and we talked about how God uh, gives people a, a sort of spiritual life within them that we can describe as a sort of second kind of birth. And it gives us this emotional awareness of the reality of God in our lives and invites us to see God as our Abba, our Father, someone we have a, a, t- a tight, close relationship with. And if it's true that God put his eternal life in us through spiritual birth, then eternal life is not something that begins in the future when we die, but it begins at the moment of spiritual conception. That's what I would argue. That's what I would say we could take from that passage. And so to be a disciple means to get a head start on eternal life. And instead of waiting to become a new person in the future, when we show up at heaven's door and we type in that code to get in one day, I would say God is wanting to start that work of eternal life in us now in the present. I would say that that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is to have that belief that the good news leads us to, uh, to salvation, but it's not just good news about later, but it's also good news now, too. And that is what growth and transformation look like. And it's what we're going to be studying for the next two sermons in this series. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about how the concept of bearing fruit shows that we take eternal life now seriously. That's what we'll dig into today, okay? A grow part one, okay? Well, next week we'll do grow part two. Julie will talk through that. Let's start about talking about the idea of growing, okay? I would be surprised if anyone listening to this thinks that growth is a bad thing, right? I think we all think, you know, we don't want to be stagnant. We always want to be growing as people. This is like a very common thing. But when we think about growing, it's good to sort of examine ourselves and think about what do we mean by growing, right? What, is, what do I want to do when I grow? What, do I, what does the society around me kind of tell me growth looks like? I think we can use trees and plants as maybe an example of things that grow and kind of ways we can think about what growth might look like. Now, one way that trees and plants grow is in their height or how much you notice them, right? We all have towering trees maybe that we, we see regularly. We have one in our yard that, you know, we can see from down the road as we're driving up to our house. It sort of towers over uh, the rest of the neighborhood, right? And you can't help but notice it. It kind of stands out because of its height, how tall it is. I think we're, we as a society can be very concerned with that question. How tall am I getting? How much am I getting noticed? And that's how we tend to measure our growth, is by looking at those two things. How high up in the world am I? How much are people noticing me? And it's, it's very concerned with our desires and our egos and trying to satisfy them. We want to be a tree that someone can see from all around, that it's achieved its greatest desires and is getting noticed and acknowledged by everyone for it. And so growth is supposed to lead us to the goal of having it all together, of achieving, of achieving our dreams and, and being recognized for those things, right? So, for example, think about there's not many institutions left in our society that are concerned with growing people. But the, the main ones that we really have, are, I think, are schools or colleges and universities. Think about how they market themselves to you. You can see these on billboards sometimes around city or on the city where different colleges are trying to market themselves to you. Think about what they're telling you they'll do for you if you go there. They want you to know how many of their alumni have been hired 
right? 90% of our alumni come and they get a job right out of college, right? They get to this uh, place out of, you know, that they are trying to get to. They're trying to get to point B. We'll get you to point B to get on the path to achieve your dreams, right? Or they'll shape you to be world changers. I've seen this before for different colleges. People who've gotten to the top of the social totem pole in some way and make an impact on the world. They make a name for themselves. They create a legacy. If you come here, we'll help you grow into the kind of person who is a world changer, who's impacting their world. We'll give you the leadership skills or whatever skills you need in your career that will help you excel and get noticed. Now, the reason that schools market themselves this way is because this is what we want. They know that this is what we want, and so they're trying to convince you to come to your school because they, 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 they want to let you know we'll help you to get there. Now, imagine if a school said, we're probably not going to turn you into the CEO of 3M. Like, it would be a real shock if we did that, actually. Okay? But uh, you're not going to be a tall tree that gets noticed by everybody if you come here. But we will turn you into people who are aware of your shortcomings, that, you're, you're, that they're not okay with being world changers. They, they have an honest view of themselves, that they're probably just normal people, right? But your presence is going to be one that makes your neighborhoods and workplaces better, um, that people are going to want you in their lives, even if they disagree with you about really big things like politics or social issues, right? Who people are going to want in their lives because, not because they feel like they're in the presence of greatness, but because they feel secure around them. They, they trust you. They respect you. Um, they, they call you when they're hurting, right? They have integrity and character, right? But you're, gonna, we're, you're probably going to be someone who does all that in relative uh, obscurity, I don't think we'd be attracted to a school like that because it wouldn't help us to grow in the way that we have come to value in this world, right? If we're going to pick between being known because of our success or because of our character, we probably would pick success if we had to choose between those two things. And for Christians who believe eternal life is simply something that's reserved for the future, right? It doesn't really have a lot of impact on the present, then there's not really a lot of reason for us to push back against this idea of growth, right? There really is no conflict with making growing tall and being noticed while we're here our primary goal. In fact, it might actually be kind of encouraged in a lot of ways. What kind of person do I want to be is not really an important question a lot of times because the only question we're told that really matters is where do I go when I die? And if that thing's taken care of, then all the other questions I can answer any way that I want to. I do think this is, that this kind of in the back of our minds in a lot of ways is why you find a lot of times Christians don't seem to care a lot about integrity anymore in themselves or their leaders. I think that's something we see a lot of times, unfortunately. But here's the thing, okay? The kind of growth that I just described is not what makes a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is not really concerned with how tall they can get and how much they can get noticed because I think they're aware enough to realize that that kind of thing is really not in their control anyway, right? That's something that is in God's hands, right? Passages like Proverbs 19, 21 might come to their mind where they say, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. That's really kind of how it all shakes out at the very end anyway, Instead, disciples are most concerned with the other way that plants and trees grow, right? What's naturally coming out of them, even when they don't realize it? The language for that kind of growth is bearing fruit. And at Res City, we use this language a lot. If you've been here for a while, you've definitely heard us kind of talk about this concept before or use that language in kind of just our, you know, day-to-day -day lives. 
And, and, the, and we're going to talk about that today. Maybe you're asking, why is, why is this such a fundamental kind of way for us to talk about discipleship or following Jesus here at a church? And I want to, let's talk about that here for a little bit, okay? First and foremost, bearing fruit is one of Scripture's most common language for God's hope for what his people will do, right? So let's start with an example in Isaiah 5, okay? The, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he's speaking on behalf of God in, in a kind of a poetic form of critique towards God's people, the people of Israel. And it's supposed to be a song on behalf of a man's best friend. So let's read a couple of verses from that. Um, now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Let's jump from verse 2 to verse 7. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Right? So it's a song on behalf of a friend. And the friend is, very, you know, very clearly, it's not hard to discern that the friend is God, who has been working very hard to produce this flourishing vineyard. And we, we read about their hard work, right? There's, there are many stones on an average Jewish hillside, and the farmer didn't have any mechanized equipment back then to sort of do anything with it. So to turn them into a wall to keep animals out or to build a permanent watchtower that would allow you to kind of just look over your land and make sure everything is good would take a lot of effort. And it's really hard to uh, construct a wine press. This is what you need if you were going to actually do anything with the grapes that grew in your vineyard, right? There are two linked vats of stone that are wood or clay um, also, and one is going to press the juice out for the grapes. The other one's going to be where the juice settles, um, and that involves further labor. And then on top of all of that, you have to wait a couple years just to get the first few grapes, right? So this is the kind of thing that takes a ton of work. Uh, to, to try to build a vineyard that produces uh, good fruit. God is really invested in people who will bear good fruit, and he's willing to put in some sweat equity, produce it. Okay? That's what this passage is saying. So imagine God's grief, his frustration, his sadness at putting in all this work and patience and getting grapes that are good for nothing. Right? They are grapes that are just producing things like violence and oppression. Right? So this is kind of where the passage ends, and it's kind of in a search of a solution. And we find a solution to it in the New Testament in passages like this one from John 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father, verses 5 and 8 in John 15 there. So God's answer to this problem is to root people in Jesus because Jesus is the true life-giving source that can sustain eternal life in the future but also in the present and cause the fruit of heaven to naturally grow out of people who are abiding in him. And this fruit-bearing becomes a marker of a disciple. So Jesus says very specifically in verse 8, a member of God's vineyard and that makes God happy. Now, this concept of fruit-bearing is so prevalent that it shows up, by my count, in at least 10 of the 27 uh, uh, books in the New Testament, right? So over a third of the books in the New Testament use this concept or imagery of bearing fruit in them, right? 
And it maybe asks me, it begs the question a little bit, well, why fruit? Why is this such a common image for talking about growth in the Bible? Well, I think the first is, is kind, of, kind of just think about who is the original hearers of this, right? Uh, Jesus and Isaiah used this language because a lot of their original audience were farmers. That was a very, very common profession in the ancient world, unlike today, where it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that a lot less people do. Um, it's what people knew. So to get a point across, you talk the language of the people that you're talking to, right? But I think a second reason that you can go even further to why they would use this fruit language so much is that it's such, I think, a beautiful and natural image for how humans actually work. Right? Genetically speaking, a tree can only produce whatever fruit is inside it. Right? An apple tree can only produce apples. It can't produce oranges. Right? Very basic um, plant science right there for you. Okay? And so for Jesus, this becomes a litmus test of your heart. Okay? So for example, Matthew 7.20, Jesus says, Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. The fruit that comes out of you shows you what's really inside. So that way you can have two people who look the same on the outside, like two different jelly beans. They have look exactly the same on the outside, but uh, what comes out of them represents what's on the inside, right? Something uh, can't be forced or manufactured that isn't there already, right? A baby wipe uh, jelly bean might look like the coconut one, but it's only going to taste like baby wipes because that's what's on side, inside of it, and fruit can't be faked. I think it also represents the way that humans grow, too, in a very natural and helpful image, okay? So when a plant has good soil, when it's being regularly watered, fertilized, pruned, etc., we can expect good fruit to grow out of it, right? And we can expect it to take some time. We can't rush the process of that. We have to wait for it because fruit is not something you can force. It only comes after the natural growth process. And humans are like that, too. The good stuff that comes out of us usually takes some time to get there. In the same way, when we create the right environment, if we're willing to wait and not force it or freak out when we don't see it come right away, fruit is going to start to naturally grow out of us. Character, virtue, the things that we're cultivating within us, we can hopefully expect those to come out of us someday. Right? And finally, I think the image also makes sense of the difficulties of growth in our lives, too. Because right? when we talk about growing things from trees and plants, there's a lot of stuff that's out of control of the, of the farmer who might be trying to produce it, right? There are droughts that might limit the water that uh, a plant is getting. There are, uh, you know, could be multiple cloudy days that limit the amount of sun that, are, that is being given to it. There could be bad soil. There could be other plants that are stealing the sun, kind of crowding out the tree that's trying to grow uh, big and tall and get the sunlight. There are rabbits that might come and eat the fruit off a of plant before it can mature. There are insects and disease which can damage the fruit and, you know, hinder its ability to grow big and strong. And I think it's like that for us as humans, too. We encounter hard times. We might have trauma. Um, there might be uh, deviant forces, right, whether human or spiritual, that are working against us to try to li uh, limit our ability to bear fruit in some season. And it means that we might have some seasons of life that our, uh, you know, fruit's going to grow well, and some seasons where it's just going to be a lot harder, and we're not going to see it quite as, as much, right? And that's just kind of how humans work, okay? Now, next week, Julie's going to talk a little bit about how adversity is necessary for growth too. So kind of put a pin in that and think about that. But I think it's really helpful to understand that we are going to grow a lot of times in the same way that uh, trees and, and plants do. 
Okay, so this has been very high level so far. It's very abstract. But what does it actually look like practically? Well, I think that brings us to a letter written from the Apostle Paul to a church in Galatia. Right, let's talk a little bit about this uh, passage, Galatians 5, in our New Testaments. It's one of the most famous passages in fruit-bearing in all of Scripture. Maybe, maybe it's the most famous, you could say. Now, the first, just to catch you up to speed on where we're at in Galatians 5, the first few chapters deal with a crisis in the church in Galatia where the church is sort of, they've given themselves over to a view that they have to be strict followers of the Jewish law if they're going to find uh, righteousness and be worthy of God. Right? They believe that the law following is how that they should begin and continue eternal life. Now, this is despite passages like Isaiah 5, right, where God talks about how little fruit was growing from these people of Israel, but these were also people who were following the same law, and that fruit was not growing out of them. And so Paul's point throughout the letter is that by itself, any set of rules or laws or, or cultural norms are not going to produce the fruit that God wants. So if that's true, why are they going back to it? That's Paul's question to them over and over again. Only God's grace, only his spirit is going to produce it. And that's kind of the conflict of the book as you read through it. It's, it's very complex, and there are some very specific circumstances in it, but it's important because it does teach us that anything other than God's grace and his spirit um, uh, and our trust in those are ultimately going to produce bitter fruit and not lead to true life. The best that we're going to do if we're relying on something like that is putting up wax fruit to cover up the bad fruit that's growing behind it. And it's strongly hinted at that they did all this for the wrong kind of growth, okay? They want to grow tall. They want to be noticed. We see hints of this in Galatians 5, verses 15 and 26. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. They turned this idea of being righteous before God into a sort of status competition, trying to grow tall and be noticed by everyone else around them. Right? And when you're focused on your ego and just kind of being noticed, you'll do whatever it takes to get it. You'll follow, you'll follow a lot very closely if you think that you have to do that in order to get to grow tall or be noticed. Paul calls living a life like this, uh, that's focused on growing tall and being noticed, living by the flesh, because it's just about satisfying our egos and desires. And what it does is it invites all kinds of it doesn't, not only does it stop real true fruit from growing, but it also invites anti-fruit to grow out of this. Right? And he kind of gives a list of it in verses 19 to 21. When you follow the desires of your, of your sinful nature, that's how the NLT translates this, but literally it's the flesh that Paul says there. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that living, anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? These, these anti-fruit are the sort of unintentional produce of focusing only on growing towards our desires and our ego, of wanting to grow tall or be successful or just get noticed by everyone around us. This is what's going to grow out of us, right? When you walk by the flesh trying to simply grow tall, it's not that no fruit's coming out of you. It's just that the fruit that you don't want to grow out of you probably is going to start to come. Now, Paul contrasts this with what he calls the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 25. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he says, this is the stuff a disciple of Jesus should be aiming for. Okay? This is what it means to grow as a disciple for these things to flower out of you naturally rather than things like the anti-fruit that he just talked about. And I think this is what living eternal life and pulling it into the present now looks like for us too, is to grow and bear this fruit. Now notice some characteristics about these fruit. I think it's important to sort of consider what is going on with these. In order to see these, you have to be surrounded by people and regularly engage with them. I think it can be easy to think that we're people who are very, you know, loving or patient or whatever, but if you're not actually having to love hard people or be patient with them, you can't grow this fruit. It's impossible to do. It requires you to be in regular, difficult interaction with people who are not like you or get on your nerves or are just really difficult to love for some reason in order for the fruit to really grow big and strong. Trying to do love or kindness or goodness on your own is like trying to clap with one hand. You can't do it. And further, the right way to grow is not about how to satisfy your needs and egos and desires and kind of figure out how you can use the people in your life to get there, but it's to help others move towards their desires and needs like God does for us. That's the fundamental vision of this fruit. It sort of reorients how we tend to view our lives and how we tend to view the stuff that we're doing to try to satisfy our own things and, try, and it completely changes who you want to be, who you want to see grow higher and be noticed. It moves it from you to the people around you. That's what this fruit produces in us. Now this is the most specific list we get in the New Testament of actual fruit, um, you know, actual fruit qualities. But I think all of these kinds of virtues that we see in Jesus and celebrate in other places in Scripture should also make it onto the list, right? So we could throw things like self-denial or justice or mercy, trust and hope. All these things that are highly valued throughout Scripture, I think, are fruit that we can bear as disciples of Jesus. And an important reason that we do want to grow and bear fruit is because God wants it, right? That in and of itself is enough. Isaiah 5 is all about that. He's desiring it. It's pleasing to him. It shows that his work is not in vain. It brings honor to him to see his people, the ones who are called by his name, grow fruit that is, is, is very discernible and easy to see that represents the love and care and hard work that God has put into them. But there are other more important and practical reasons that I think are important for us to discuss too. I recently saw some information about our neighborhood, sort of uh, kind of parsing through a bunch of different, you know, this is one of these big data analyses of the neighborhood. Sometimes churches kind of can get these done to kind of understand the neighborhood there in a little bit better. And I thought it was very interesting and sobering what the number one belief about Jesus in our very neighborhood here is, okay? It's that people in the church do not behave as Jesus would behave, Right? That was the number one thing on the list, and it very strong agreement, you know, higher than any other statements that people were given to look at. That was the number one thing that they found agreement with. That people in the church do not behave as Jesus would behave. And you know what? The sad truth is that this is a well-earned reputation among modern Christians. 
right? There are plenty of receipts out there that we could look at to figure out why people think that. I think a reason why is that the church has too often been focused on the wrong kinds of growth that we were talking about earlier, having a too narrow view of what eternal life is, right? When we talk about eternal life as being something only in the future, that means our growth in the present is only going to really be measured on how high are we getting, how much are we getting noticed for it, rather than what fruit are we growing, Right? And so we think it's attractive to the world around us to try to grow big and tall and try to get noticed. We think that will draw people to Jesus. Right? How put together do we look when we gather as a church? How slick are our visuals? How nice looking and, and cool are the people that we put in front of others? Right? Um, you, you know, uh, we want flashy worship services. We want majestic sanctuaries for people to walk into. Right? We want to accrue a bunch of power for ourselves. We want to be a very powerful force in voting in our, in our United States here. Right? We want to be able to protect ourselves as America changes. We want to be comfortable we want to be a place where you can come and be comfortable until eternal life starts. And we do focus on good and noble purpose of trying to invite people to have eternal life, but we thought that this kind of upward growth of height and being noticed is the kind of thing that would be attractive to people outside the church, right? And it's not to say it never works, but I think the truth is that people outside the church are not impressed with how high we can get, with how much power we can accrue, with how cool and big and slick our worship services can be, with how put together we look, with how much better we seem than everyone else around us, and how much we can claim to help them do the same. Because if they want to go to a cool concert, right, if they want to be wowed, they can go to a Taylor Swift concert, right? That's far better than anything any church could put on, right? If they're looking to be entertained, there's plenty of great TV out there to do that, right? If they want to find celebrities to idolize, there are plenty of those outside the church for them to do that. If they want uh, some sort of self-improvement to help them maximize themselves, to grow big and tall, there's lots of self-help out there for them to do. And I think since the church has had so little concern with real growth of fruit bearing and formation, like we're talking about today, when people taste the church, they aren't experiencing peach or tutti frutti or coconut. They're, you know, the stuff that tastes good and wants them to eat, makes them want to eat more, they're experiencing the kind of stuff that pushes them away. And if that's what you tasted when you bit into the church, if you tasted things like baby wipes and barf, would you be interested in the good news that they're offering you? I don't think you would, right? What people, are, I think, are looking for is a reason to know and trust that Jesus is good. That's what they want to know because goodness is hard to find in our culture. Love and joy and peace and patience, these are in very short supply in the world. These things are not easy to, be, to, to find in a world that is dominated by the flesh, the things that Paul talked about earlier. And so people want a taste of eternal life now. They, 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 they want things that no one could ever be angry about. They want things that no one would ever make a law against because they are good. Like Things like what Paul says in Galatians 5.23, there is no law against these things. No one is going to be against this stuff. Consider what a world that experienced a church that was concerned less with growing high in the air and being noticed so they could look down on everyone else, but believed eternal life was present with them in the present by bearing fruit its main goal. Think about what that would uh, say to the culture around us, right? And if you think I'm saying that like outreach and evangelism aren't essential, it's because I think that those are so important that I'm talking about why we need to focus on bearing fruit, 
right? It would be hard to neglect the good news of Jesus if the fruit of heaven was what people were regularly, regularly encountering when they encountered people in the church, right? Unfortunately, though, that's not what people are experiencing when they come across the church. And since we have seen such a poor job get done a lot of times, the damage and witness to the church in Jesus has been catastrophic. Like it's, We are really wrestling as a church with our standing in society because of this. And so this is why it's essential that we care about fruit bearing. When Christians bear fruit, it shows the world the good news is actually good. When Christians bear fruit, it shows the world that the good news is actually good. People are not going to believe that our news is good if they don't see it producing goodness in us and in our communities. Now, let me be really clear about this, okay? When I say talk about bearing fruit, I don't mean we're people that have it all together or that don't screw up or who are perfect. I don't think that's what bearing fruit looks like, right? When you really consider, for example, someone who is patient, why are they patient? Well, I think it's probably because they realize that they are the type of person who other people have to be patient around a lot of times. And it makes it easier for them to be patient with those who drive them nuts because they know what it looks like uh, to experience patience themselves. Or someone who has self-control, they can have it because they know people need to have self-control with them sometimes. And it makes it a lot easier to have that with other people when we recognize we're the kind of people who need others to show the same type of fruit towards us on a regular basis, right? They are people who know that they're flawed and aren't afraid to admit it. And they're trying to cultivate better flavors within them and their community because of their awareness of not being okay. This humility is authentic and attractive, and that is, is itself what I think is behind the fruit that people see. So I think it all kind of begs a question, and we'll kind of end the sermon going through, uh, answering this question a little bit. How does this fruit get produ- produced? What does it look like for this fruit to grow practically out of the lives of a follower of Jesus? Okay? Now, the first question maybe you might have is, who's in charge of the growth? Is it us or God? Um, is, this, you know, is this something that we do or something that God does? And I think the answer is yes. We both get to partake in this. Um, and, and, and I think Julie next week is going to talk about this more. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But I think a really just helpful way to think about it is this. These are the blossoms. What God gives us through his spirit is the blossoms. But you, to get the fruit, you've got to learn how to be a gardener too. Right? It's something we get to work with God and doing. And so what I want to do is I want to end with some kind of practical reflections on things that you can do in the present to sort of help to cause uh, fruit to grow uh, more and more out of you. Okay? And the, there, here's the four things I want to specifically focus on. Establish deep roots, um, water, sun, and fertilize, set up a cage, and prune. Okay? This is a, a system that you can try to put in place in your life. Um, the good news is, is the idea that fruit, the fruit bearing we're buying from, you know, like we're, we're, we're talking about an image that is very common and people know, right? So we can kind of use those concepts as a way to help us think about what it might look like for, for fruit to, to bear in our own lives too, okay? Now, a couple things before we jump into these. Um, none of these are that profound, okay? I'm not reinventing the wheel by explaining any of these things. But it is important to notice too that what we're going to talk about is very counter to the way that people do American life. And so we have to be very intentional in, in the same way that, that, you know, gardening is not that tough either, but it is really important that you're intentional and diligent in it, 
okay? You're not going to get fruit if you're not out there every single day doing these basic techniques. You sometimes have to really think about it. You have to be very focused on what fruit do I want to grow in me right now, in this moment, how I'm aware that I need patience right now. What would it look like for me to grow some patience in this situation? You have to be intentional. You have to think. And this is not maybe totally comprehensive, but it's more like a basic gardening tips that you'd read online. If you were just getting started thinking about what does it look like, I'm going to try to grow some, grow some fruit in my yard, and you, you go to Google and you find the first sort of basic list of what it would look like to get started, that's kind of what this list is too, right? To grow bigger fruit though, to kind of grow in this more and more, requires that you go deeper and deeper and deeper in all of these. And that's something that we can't really do in this sermon, so I'm encouraging you to go and do it on your own. And then finally, all of these things are, need to be done in, in a serious community of gardeners, right? It, it, it's good for us to garden the fruit in our lives together with other people because then we can sort of cross-pollinate, right? Uh, r- remember, uh, all of these fruit are things you can't do on your own. So it's important that we're doing this with others, right? So let's hop into it here quickly to wrap the sermon up. Establish deep roots. Real fruit only comes by abiding in Jesus and walking by his spirit. Remember what Jesus says in John 15, verses 4 and 5. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Eternal life has been started in us already, but it's not something we control or own. Eternal life is something that is given to us by God. God owns eternal life. And so if we have that gift that's been given to us, we have to remember that we have to continue to go back to God to live the life of eternal life. Its fruit can only come out of us if we're regularly, deeply connected to it, right? And this kind of brings us back a little bit to the first sermon in the series where we talked about uh, spending time regularly with our Abba, our Father, knowing Jesus as a friend, being guided by the Spirit, living out new birth. Okay? This is going to help us to stay uh, uh, remaining in and abiding in the vine that gives us life. Okay, Because the truth is, you can't bear fruit if you don't know what it is you're trying to bear. And the only place you're going to get a good picture for the fruit that God wants to bring out of you is by looking at God himself in Jesus. Right? When we become aware of Jesus' love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness, his faithfulness, his self-control, his faith, his hope, his justice, his mercy, when we see those things, we start to know what it would look like to replicate it and show it to the world around us. But we can't see that unless we're having regular encounter with Jesus in whom we abide. Second here, talking about water, sun, and fertilizer. Okay, what am I taking in? What am I taking in? The truth is, right, this is Sunday. It's the first day of your week, um, and you're starting it off with a message today, but this is not the only sermon you're going to hear this week, right? The, the world is filled with sermons that we're constantly hearing and taking in, okay? Whenever we listen to music, listen to a song, we're hearing some kind of sermon, some kind of, someone is telling us, this is how the world is. This is what it looks like to react to the world. This is what we should chase after. This is good. This is what we should seek after to give us hope or life in some way. The same is true when we watch TV shows or when we read the news and we hear analysis of it. We're being told stories about the way that the world is, right? And those things, they're, they're not just not not doing anything to us. They shape us and they form us and they cause us to view the world a certain way too, right? And the ways that we're taught to view the world a lot of times are going to cause us to maybe uh, grow in ways or pursue things that are not 
causing us to bear real, good, godly Christ-like fruit like we're talking about today. If we're only taking in messages preached to us about another story, another vision for the world, then the fruit that comes out of us is going to look like those things that we're taking in more often. And so we need to take in the things that point us to Jesus and his story and the gospel. And here's the thing about gardening. Like, apparently you need six to eight hours a day of sunlight for a tree to grow good fruit. That's kind of a lot, right, if you think about it. We're the same way. We can't take in a small amount of this stuff. We can't just take it in in spurts. It has to be regularly what we're taking in in order to produce this fruit. All right, next up here. Setting up a cage. Habits, rhythms, structures, disciplines, right? Some fruit needs a structure to crawl up, right? Think about like tomatoes, right? When you see those tomato cages, I'm not talking about a cage that's supposed to like hem it in, but like these things that cause, it's a vine, something for the vine of the, the tomato to sort of crawl up. The bars of the tomato cage support and, and, and support the branching vines, right? And what they do is they hold some of the weight and allow you to sort of better separate the branches. It improves airflow across the foliage and supports like a lush canopy that protects the fruit from sun's called and other things. And when it comes time to harvest, when you actually need to grab the fruit because you need it, it makes it a lot easier to grab that fruit because it's on a structure. The structure makes it easy to grab the fruit. I think the same is true for us. Having habits or rhythms or structures and disciplines make it easier for us to grab our fruit too. It makes it easier to see it uh, and to know we need it and to kind of grab it for a given situation we might need. Sometimes, this is a kind of in vogue way to, to talk about this, people will use the term a rule of life. It's like a literal daily routine that keeps us in God's presence and draws our mind to his story to examine ourselves, right? And so disciplines that get included sometimes are things like silence and solitude or fasting or worship or prayer or meditation or gathering together in community. Um, even things we do on Sunday, taking communion, I think is an incredibly important discipline for us that is going to, as we reflect on it, produce fruit in us. Because the truth is, every decision we make, everything we do in our life is going to probably give us some chance to think about how we can maybe grow fruit in some way. And so structure time to reflect on that is going to increase the airflow and make it easier for us to grab the fruit when we need it. And finally, pruning. Growing fruit requires telling the truth. It's important when you're uh, gardening or trying to produce fruit on a tree that you pull back wild growths that's like a normal part of the growing process, right? Um, fruit thinning, for example, maybe is a way you do that. You, you, you often, trees will produce more fruit than what you need, and so you um, kind of pull some of it back so that the, it's not too, too much for the young branches to hold. And um, it's, it's key to do that if you want a good harvest later on that you're pruning at, you know, throughout the whole process. I think in the same way for us, we need to prune ourselves of whatever is going to make it difficult for the fruit that we want to see grow strong. And the Christian word for this is repentance. Okay, the Christian word for telling the truth to ourselves about ourselves is repentance, where we acknowledge our anti-fruit. We acknowledge that it's there. We're not scared to see it there and acknowledge it so that we can do something about it. We can turn away from it. We can pick it off. If you really look at that list of anti-fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 that we read, if you're honest with yourself, if you have the courage to tell yourself the truth, you're going to see a lot more of that in your life than you care to admit usually. And if you are unwilling to tell the truth about yourself and your anti-fruit, 
and you don't prune it, then it's going to grow alongside whatever good fruit you are trying to grow and perhaps might stifle it out entirely. So we have to be people that are constantly repenting and pruning and turning away from the fruit that grows out of us that we don't want. Let's wrap up here. Um, Bearing fruit is not rocket science necessarily, but it is incredibly important. It's the result of believing eternal life has started now and implementing the right gardening techniques as a result. And I think there's a come and see aspect with all of this, right? Because perhaps you feel like you're trying to grow in the wrong way, or maybe you see a lot of anti-fruit in your life. Maybe you want to change your idea of, of what kind of growth is necessary. Maybe you're not abiding in Jesus. Maybe you've never ab- abided in Jesus before. And, and if that's you, the invitation to you is to just come and see, right? Maybe you've experienced a lot of bad fruit from Jesus' disciples, kind of imperfectly shown. Maybe you've gotten, in, you've gotten shades of the fruit that we're talking about here um, and, and the truth is, as much as we want to encourage disciples of Jesus to be people who bear fruit, we're going to do a poor job of it a lot of times. The place for us to go, ultimately, to see the good fruit, and the, the good fruit that we, uh, disciples of Jesus, bear, are only ever supposed to point to Jesus for other people. And so, if, if that's you, if you're wondering what it looks like to actually see this goodness, this fruit, go directly to Jesus, Go directly to Jesus. Root yourself in him so that you can be someone who grows his fruit. We're going to enter into a time of worship and communion here uh, as a church. And communion is a great time to uh, maybe abide in Jesus in some way, right? We're, We're connecting to him. We're remembering his love for us. It's a chance for you to connect yourself to God's love as we enter a time of worship. Uh, it's a time to examine yourself as we think about what God has done for us to die on the cross, to give himself uh, for us and our sins. Uh, it's a chance for you to repent, to, to give those to God and ask for forgiveness, to turn away from maybe any anti-fruit that you, the Spirit is, is leading you to see that you are growing in your own heart. Use communion as a tool, as a, as a cage for yourself right now to sort of uh, try to get the fruit, to grab the fruit, or worship, or, or gathering together as a community after we're done here. Whatever it is, be intentional. Be intentional. If you have anything that you need prayer for in this time as well, we'll have someone in the back uh, that can pray for you. Maybe you let, you're, you're, you're in a difficult season, right? You feel like you're in a drought. You're not getting much sunlight. Um, there, are, there are rabbits coming and picking away at the fruit. Like, go pray about that. Take some, take some time to ask someone to pray on your behalf so that you might see uh, that fruit that you are abiding in Jesus and grow big in you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, eternal life is not just something that you have invited us to experience someday in the future, but you've ex- invited us to experience it in the present here now, Lord. Um, I pray that as we are disciples of your son, Jesus, as we walk in eternal life here in the present, that you would cause fruit to grow out of each and every one of us and out of this church, Lord, so that it is big and strong and brings glory to you and also makes the people with, with whom we're trying to share your good news actually experience it as good, Lord. That's our number one prayer today, God. Help to make that a reality in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.